Bishut Rosh Yeshiva, honored speakers and esteemed guests. Um, good morning and welcome everybody to our first um, YU Medical Ethics Society off-campus event in New Jersey. Um, my name is Mordechai Smith um, and I'm the co-president of the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society. I, along with my co-president Yosef Ashur, would like to thank you all for joining us this morning. We would like to start by acknowledging one of our attendees, Rabbi David Fold, who has been involved with MES for almost a decade now. Um, without Rabbi Fold, Yosef and I would not have been able to run our very successful conference at the beginning of this year, and we would not have been able to coordinate the many events that our board has run throughout the year. On behalf of the entire MES family, we would like to extend our deepest appreciation to the Folds, who have graciously joined us today. We look forward to a continued close relationship in the future. Additionally, we would like to thank Yeshiva University Center for the Jewish Future under the leadership of our Dean Rabbi Brander, who's going to be presenting here today. The Center for the Jewish Future, which is run by Rabbi Brander, has enabled MES to do a tremendous amount over the last eight years, and none of it ha would have been possible without Rabbi Brander. Rabbi Brander provides a constant support and encouragement, and for this alone, we owe him a tremendous amount of gratitude. Thank you, Rabbi Brander, for your continuous dedication to the Medical Ethics Society. We know your son's getting married in a couple of days, and we are very grateful that you could join us today. So mazel tov. The entire MES community is very grateful for everything you do for us. Personally, Yosef and I would like to express our extreme gratitude and for all the advice that you've given us throughout the year and your invaluable guidance that has enabled us to run a wonderful year. To be honest, we did not actually plan this, this event. Um, the event today was really put together by two of our board members, Hani Herzig and Simcha Weissman, who are in the back. Um, along with the help of Janine Kay from the CJF, um, have been able together, all of them, to put together this wonderful event. Um, so on behalf of everybody here, thank you all. Finally, we'd like to thank Avatar for hosting this event. Specifically, we'd like to especially thank Rabbi Pupko, um, who we know is going through a little bit of a difficult time now, and we'd like to wish him for his daughter, for Shalema, um, and only here at Basar Tovat in the future. So I'd like to introduce our moderator for today's event, um, Dr. Kenneth Prager. Dr. Prager is a professor of clinical medicine, director of clinic, clinical ethics, and the chairman of the Medical Ethics Committee at Columbia University Medical Center. He spent two years in the Indian Health Service practicing general medicine at the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation in South Dakota after his medical internship. Dr. Prager held clandestine medical clinics at the Soviet Union during the visit of the Refuseniks in 1986 and later set up the first U.S.-Soviet medical student exchange program between Columbia PNS and the first Moscow Medical Academy. Dr. Prager has been a pulmonologist for 40 years. He is heavily involved in teaching pulmonology and medical ethics to medical students, house officers, and nurses. His writings on medicine and medical ethics has appeared in medical journals and textbooks, as well as on the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Prager is a regular guest lecturer in Israel at the, at the Ben Gurion University MD program in international health and medicine in collaboration with Columbia University Health Sciences. He has received honors for his teaching, clinical expertise, contributions to organ donation, and medical humanism. Without further ado, Dr. Prager. Thank you very much for your introduction, and thank you, Rabbi Brander, for being such a uh, wonderful uh, guide uh, and uh, facilitator for the uh, Medical Ethics Society at Yeshiva University. Um, I would like to uh, begin, uh, before I introduce our uh, panelists, uh, <clears throat> by giving you uh, just a little bit of a background into what I consider to be a really fascinating uh, subject. Um, in vitro fertilization uh, began in 1978 with the birth of the first so-called test tube baby, Louise Brown, who is today, I guess, what, 35 years old, so she's getting up there. 
Since then, about 4 million children have been brought into the world as a result of the technology that was developed by two English physicians. One was Dr. Edwards, who received the Nobel Prize for his work in 2010, and the other was Dr. Steptoe. And correct me, I think he was deceased and so could not get the Nobel Prize. Is that right? Yes. And Dr. Edwards actually just passed away himself. And he did as well. These two physicians really pioneered a field. And we as Jews, of course, are particularly sensitive and appreciative for this because Peru Urvu, as you know, was the first commandment that was given to the first human beings on earth to be fruitful and multiply. And when the sadness and sometimes tragedy of infertility afflicts couples, the new technology of in vitro fertilization has enabled millions of people to have the joy of parenting and having children, whereas they would not otherwise have been able to do so. But just like anything else in technology, there's a flip side to everything. And the flip side to in vitro fertilization, I shouldn't perhaps put it in a negative way, but there are very serious and difficult problems, ethical problems, religious problems, challenges, perhaps is a better word, that have arisen in the course of this technology. It opens a world of new possibilities. In terms of the positive things, in addition to infertility, because it was originally meant as a treatment for infertility, it has enabled research to take place. For example, stem cell research on human eggs would not have been able to, on embryos, excuse me, would not have been able to occur without the creation of this new technology. And the possibilities of stem cell research, as you know, are legion. Being able to replace organs that are diseased and failing, this would not have been possible without the field of in vitro fertilization. In addition, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which enables physicians to be able to diagnose serious or even fatal illnesses in potential children, enables the physician to select out the healthy embryo among a variety of, among a number of embryos, and therefore to prevent the birth of a child with a devastating illness. This obviously presents us with tremendously good possibilities. The difficult issues and the halachic and the ethical issues are situations such as new family scenarios. I'll give you an example that the Ethics Committee at Columbia a number of years ago had a situation where a child was dying of a malignancy, a boy, and he wanted his sperm to be preserved so that he could carry on his biological legacy. The sperm was preserved, and after his death, the family requested that an egg be fertilized with it from a donor and that the patient's mother be the surrogate mother. So she would be carrying her son's child. And there were obviously some questionable issues that were raised as a result. And you can go on and multiply this many, many fold. In addition, the issue of surrogacy, surrogate mothers, where you have an embryo that is implanted in the uterus of a woman who is not the biological parent of the child. Is she the mother considered halachically, legally, or is she not? So these are all of the sorts of 
challenges that we have in the area of in vitro fertilization. The issue that we're going to discuss today, and I will let Dr. Levine expound on this, the issue of freezing of eggs, raises some questions. And frankly, when I was asked to moderate this event, it had not even occurred to me that there might even be these issues in the Jewish community. But as you'll see, these are relevant to certain values that we hold in the Jewish community. And it will be fascinating, I think, to hear Dr. Levine and Rabbi Brander's take on the questions that will be posed as a result of the development of this new technology. So without further ado, let me first introduce Dr. Levine, who will speak about some of the technical aspects of egg freezing. And then I will introduce Rabbi Brander, who will speak from a halachic perspective. Rabbi Dr. Levine, who, as you know, is really an Englewood person who grew up here, and his parents, Letha and Rafe Levine, are dear members of our community. He is a physician who's specializing in reproductive endocrinology and in fertility, and he has smicha as well. He earned his bachelor's degree in English literature at Yeshiva University in 1988, his smicha from the Rabbi Isaac Elkanan Theological Seminary in 1991, and his MD degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in 1995. He completed postgraduate residency training in obstetrics and gynecology, also at Albert Einstein, and he spent three fellowship years studying reproductive medicine and surgery in Boston at Harvard University. Rabbi Dr. Levine has performed clinical and laboratory research at Einstein and Harvard in the area of in vitro fertilization, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and endometriosis, and has presented his results at national conferences. He publishes journal articles and textbook chapters in the medical literature and has been recognized with awards for research, teaching, and surgical technique. He is board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, as well as obstetrics and gynecology. He's a fellow of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and a member of the American Fertility Society and the Society for Laparoendoscopic Surgeons. And he has also sat on the Ethics Committee of the Massachusetts Medical Society and the Assisted Reproduction Ethics Committee of the Harvard Medical School. Rabbi Dr. Levine is in medical practice at the Fertility Institute of New Jersey in New York, a clinical in vitro fertilization center in Bergen County. He teaches residents and students, practices clinical reproductive endocrinology, surgery, and in vitro fertilization, and lectures nationally and internationally to physicians, the lay public, and the Jewish community on medical topics, as well as the interface of halakha and reproductive medicine. And so, with that short introduction, I now turn the table over to our, uh, uh, my colleague and uh, our good friend, Rabbi Dr. Levine. Thank you for those kind words, Dr. Pringer. First of all, let me say how pleased and honored I am to be here today to be speaking with um, the esteemed Rabbi Brander and the esteemed Dr. Prager. Rabbi Brander, wish, I want to wish you a mazel tov on all your family simplest that you're literally in the midst of right now. Um, and uh, Dr. Prager is somebody whom I grew up looking up towards and having a tremendous respect and admiration to. So I, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here with him today. And it's really also a pleasure um, and really very nostalgic for me also um, to be speaking here in Englewood at Abbas Torah. I don't really know the new shul very well, but I remember the old shul uh, very, very well. I grew up in Englewood, and um, it, I was actually thinking that it's going to be 40 years this coming summer 
that my parents moved to Englewood with us. And I remember very well that first Shabbos that we came to Avatar, it was in the old building. I don't even know exactly where in relationship to this room that was anymore. But we came to that old shul. Um, we sat down. Rabbi Swift came over with his impeccable British mannerisms and introduced himself and uh, welcomed us to the community. And I remember that Shabbos very well because I remember when in the midst of Rabbi Swift's drusha, I remember leaning over to my father and saying, Abba, I do not understand a word of what he's saying <laughs> with his lofty vocabulary. I had just turned seven years old and I could barely understand one out of every five words of what he said. And then subsequently when Rabbi Golden became the rabbi of Abbas Torah, I've been privileged for many years to have a very warm relationship with him. My wife and I have always appreciated his warmth and support over the years. So it's really a pleasure to be speaking here today. And it's a pleasure to be speaking about this really up and coming and frontier topic in reproductive medicine. This topic, the topic of egg freezing, is a major issue. That's, you'll see I'm going to describe it for you now, why, but it's becoming a major, major issue in the area of reproductive medicine. I think it's going to become really a much more and more of a global issue as these next few years go by. It's um, my task today, as Rabbi Branzer said, is to present you with the medical and scientific background to the concept of egg freezing or elective egg freezing, egg freezing in general. And what I'd like to do is um, divide this discussion into four parts. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about the egg. I'd like to talk a little bit about freezing, cryobiology, the freezing of living tissue. I'd like to talk a little bit about the clinical uses of egg freezing. What kinds of patients can we offer this to? What kind of patients could benefit from it? And then I finally like to acquaint everybody with the actual process of egg freezing. Somebody decides to freeze her eggs, what does she need to do? And including what are the risks of that process? What are the potential successes of that process? What are the costs of that process? So let's start with a discussion a little bit for a few minutes about the human egg. And this may be a review for many of you, but it's an important review. We know that the, every cell in our bodies, we have about 100 trillion cells, not counting cells that don't have a nucleus like blood cells but every cell in our body contains 46 chromosomes. And those 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs of chromosomes, contain almost all of our DNA and therefore form the blueprint for who we are biologically. There's only one type of cell in the body which does not contain this 46 chromosome complement. And that type of cell is called the gamete. There's a male gamete and there's a female gamete. And the gamete has 23 chromosomes, has half the number of chromosomes. The purpose of these gametes is for reproduction. And any biologic organism, in order to survive and in order to ensure the survivability of its species, has to really be able to do three things. It has to eat, it needs a source of energy. It has to breathe or respire. It needs a way to convert that source of energy into energy. And it needs to reproduce. And so our gametes are for the purposes of reproduction because when the male gamete and the female gamete meet, there are 23 chromosomes in each fused together and form a new 46 chromosome blueprint, which then forms the basis, the biologic basis for a new human being, for a new human embryo, which will eventually become a new human being. The male gamete, and that's the subject for another discussion, but is called the spermatozoan or the sperm cell and is produced within the male gonad. The gonads are the places where the gametes are produced and the male gonad is called the testis. The female gamete is called the oocyte, 
O-O-C-Y-T-E, or the egg, the egg cell. And the egg forms within the female gonad, which is the ovary. A woman has two ovaries, just as a male has two testes. Sperm cells are very small, and they're modal. They have a long tail, which propels them along, because sperm cells have to find their way to the egg. And sperm cells are produced in a process which is called spermatogenesis. That's the formation of sperm. Egg cells are very different from sperm. They have that, that 23 chromosome complement, but that's where the similarity ends. Egg cells, the, the human egg, has certain <clears throat> distinctions to it that really set it apart from any other cell in the body. And one of the very basic but interesting distinctions is that the egg is actually the largest cell in the human body. The human body has 100 trillion cells, and every one of them is pretty much microscopic, except for the egg. The egg measures about 120 microns in diameter, which is about one-tenth of a millimeter. And if you picture a ruler with millimeter markings and picture dividing a millimeter marking into 10, you can see it. Just to give a frame of reference, if you, if you take a pencil and put it in a pencil sharpener and sharpen it to a really nice sharp point, and then touch that sharpened tip gently to a piece of paper, and look at that dot, that's about the size of a human egg. You can see it with your eye, with the unaided eye, without a microscope. So that's one thing that makes this, the egg distinct from among all the other cells in the body. Another thing that makes the egg distinct, that gives it its distinction, is that not only is it the largest cell in the body, but it's also the rarest cell in the body. There are the fewest eggs in the body as compared with any other cell type. There are many cell types in the body and there are millions upon billions of these types of cells, but for eggs, that's not the way it works. Egg production is called oogenesis. The process of, you may recall that meiosis is the process of a cell dividing to become, to, to go from a 46 chromosome cell to become a gamete, a 23 chromosome cell. So the process of meiosis in an egg only occurs before a human female is born. In fact, meiosis, the process of egg production only occurs in the first, in early fetal life, in the first half of fetal life, by the time a, a female fetus is five months pregnant, is five months in her mother's uterus, at that point, egg production stops. And there is no more egg production at all from that point on for the duration of the life of that human female. Egg production, sperm production is different. Spermatogenesis begins for males at puberty, at 13, 14, 15 years old, and continues as an ongoing, continuous process within the male testes for the duration of that person's life. But egg production occurs only in the first five months or so of pregnancy, and at that point, that's it. It ends. There's no more egg production for the rest of that person's life. And at that point, at five months gestational age, the female fetus, the human female fetus, has a total of about six to seven million eggs between her two ovaries in total. And from then on, there's no more egg production and there's an attrition of eggs. Eggs die off beginning at that point on a continuous basis and nobody knows exactly why, what determines which eggs die and which eggs don't, but there's a continuous process of what's called apoptosis, cell death. So that by the time that female fetus is born, by the time she gets to nine months of pregnancy in her mother's uterus, that number of eggs in total is down to about one to two million. And that deterioration of eggs continues throughout childhood, so that by the time this, now, this girl becoming a young woman reaches the point of puberty at 12, 13, 14 years old, whatever it may be, the number of eggs that she has now at the beginning of her reproductive career 
is down to, at most, about 400,000 between the two ovaries. 400,000, that's nothing compared with the 100 trillion <coughs> cells that we have in the body. So the egg is the rarest, it's the most rare cell in the body. And unfortunately, and this is why we come to this concept of egg freezing and its uses, that number of eggs continues to decline throughout the reproductive years. We don't really think about the eggs of a fetus, we don't really think about the eggs of a child, but the eggs become very important in the reproductive years, in the, in the peak reproductive, in the 20s, in the 30s, in the, in the early 40s. And throughout that time, the number of <coughs> eggs is continuously declining also. From that 400,000 at the point of puberty, it declines to essentially zero at the point of menopause, which typically <coughs> happens in the mid to later 40s or early 50s. At that point, the ovaries essentially have no eggs, and that's a continuous process of decline. And it's because of this physiological fact that fertility, female fertility, on the basis of her eggs, declines with ongoing age. Because the quantity of eggs, the number of eggs inside of the ovary continuously declines, and quality goes along with quantity. So that as the number of eggs decreases, the proportion of normal eggs within the egg pool that's available increase, decreases. So the percentage of abnormal eggs increases. And therefore, there's more of a chance that that person will not be able to become pregnant from the eggs that she has. So the number of eggs declines and the quality of the eggs declines. And because of that, female fertility declines throughout her reproductive years. It declines at different rates for different people. For some people, the slope of loss of eggs is much steeper so that a person may end up going through menopause at 40 years old. For other people at the age of 42, her ovaries might look absolutely fine because the slope of decline is a little bit shallower so that sh this person might go through menopause at the age of 49 or 50. For everybody it's different, but for everybody it's inevitable. That's the way it goes. The number and the quantity and quality of eggs decreases. And just to give you an example of the effect that this has on, on female fertility, the chances if you take a woman who's between the ages of about 20 to 25 who's starting to try to become pregnant, her chances of ending up not being able to have genetic children in her life will be about 5%, something like that. A low number, it's not zero and it's tragic when it happens, but 95% of people at that point will be able to have a genetic child, 5% will not. If you look at a woman between the ages of 25 and 30 who's starting to have children, that number goes up to about 10%, about a 10% chance that she will not be able to have a genetic child. Between the ages of 30 and 35, that goes up to about 15%. Between the ages of 35 and 40, that goes up to about 30%. And for a woman between the ages of 40 and 45 who's starting to try to build a family, the chances of her not being able to have genetic children in her lifetime will skyrocket somewhere around 65%. So female fertility on the basis of egg quantity and quality decreases continuously from the beginning of a reproductive career until menopause. And let's put that aside for a moment now, that, that piece of physiological information, and let's move on to a little bit of a discussion about freezing, about cryobiology, the idea of freezing living tissues, freezing a living cell. The idea of freezing something is just as people age, we move along, our metabolic processes move along, we age, and eventually our metabolic processes stop. That's true for any biologic organism. That's true for every individual cell also. Every cell goes through its metabolic processes and every cell ages. And eventually, every cell will die. S different cells 
types have different lifespans. Some cells will live for years and years. Some cells have a very short lifespan, but every cell will age. And the idea of freezing a cell is that if you can drop the temperature of a cell to even theoretically as close as possible to absolute zero, absolute zero temperature is the temperature at which all, molec all molecular processes in the universe stops. Every bit of molecular motion stops. So if you can freeze the cell to a really, really, really cold temperature, you can arrest its metabolic processes. You can stop its aging, basically. And then when you thaw the cell at some point in the future, you'll, you're literally freezing it in time and you'll continue then, it'll continue from where it was and it will not have aged at all in the, inter, in the intervening time. The problem is that freezing a cell is a very difficult thing to do. And the reason it's difficult is because most of our bodies consists of water, right? About two thirds to three quarters of the makeup of, our, of all of our bodies is water. And most of that water is intracellular water. Most of that water is within our cells. Most cells in the body contain about 60 to 70% water by volume. And what happens when you freeze water? It forms ice. Ice is crystalline. Ice crystals are sharp and ice crystals are jagged. And these sharp, jagged ice crystals can actually tear apart a cell. So if you try to freeze a living cell, ice crystals will form within the cell and disrupt the ultrastructure of that cell, disrupt the, disrupt the fine framework in the cytoplasm of the cell, it'll tear apart the cell membrane, it'll disrupt the organelles in the cell, and you'll thaw that cell, and it will not be alive anymore. You'll find that the cell is dead. So there was a lot of research in the 1940s um, into trying to figure out how to successfully be able to freeze a cell in a way that will survive the freezing process and then the subsequent thawing process. And actually, interestingly, most of this research into cell freezing was actually driven by the cattle farming industry and was focused on sperm because the cattle farmers were interested in being able to freeze sperm from male from bulls so that they can properly breed cattle to produce good meat and breed cows to produce good milk. But whatever it is, it was useful for, for human biology also. And it was almost accidentally discovered in 1949 that there's a way to successfully freeze a cell. If you take a sperm cell and you desiccate the cell, if you dehydrate it, you remove all the water from that cell and you replace the water with certain solutes, certain chemicals, which are called, which we term now cryoprotectants, chemicals which will protect the cell from the freezing process. If you, these cryoprotectants, these chemicals do not freeze in the same way water does. They don't form crystals. So if you remove the water from the cell and you replace the water with these cryoprotectants and then you freeze the cell and drop it to a very cold temperature, you usually use liquid nitrogen, which is about 350 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, very, very cold. Absolute zero, where everything in the universe stops, is about 450 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. So we freeze the cell with its cryoprotectants and that allows the cell to be able to survive the thaw. The initial studies were done with a certain syrupy kind of chemical called glycerol. Now we also use something called DMSO, dimethyl sulfoxide. We also use something called propane diol, and very commonly we use something else called ethylene glycol, which we all commonly knows at, know as antifreeze, which we use in our cars. We use ethylene glycol in the laboratory to replace the water in the cell and to be able to successfully freeze the cell. And in fact, the first, uh, the first successful pregnancy in humans from frozen and thawed sperm was reported in about 1953.
It's an interesting history. And since then, our, the technique of being able to successfully freeze cells has improved dramatically. We've learned what kinds of proportions and types of cryoprotectants to use. We've learned how to cool the cell. We've learned that a slow freeze protocol works the best. If you slowly, slowly bring the temperature of that cell down, generally by about one degree Celsius per minute, and eventually get it after several hours to the, that 350 degree mark below zero in liquid nitrogen, it freezes well and it thaws well. And when you thaw the cell, you reverse the process. You remove the cryoprotectants from within the cell, you re put the water back into the cell, and the cell survives very nicely. And we're really able to do this with a lot of success. And in fact, with the advent of IVF, as Dr. Prager said, in, with, when that, that first IVF baby was born in 1978, it was not very much after that, that we were successfully able to translate the, all the work that had been done with sperm and other cell freezing to embryos. And in fact, the first reported pregnancy from a frozen and thawed embryo, which was placed into somebody's uterus, was only just a few years after the first IVF baby. It was about 1984, 1984 or so. And we do this with, with embryos, we use the same slow freeze protocol with great success. We remove the water contents from the cells of the embryo, we replace the water with these cryoprotectant chemicals. We slow freeze it, bring it down over several hours to 350 degrees below zero in liquid nitrogen. And then we can successfully thaw that embryo, place it into somebody's uterus, and have a pretty decent chance of a successful pregnancy. And this is now routine. We have learned how to do this very, very well. Eggs are a different story. Eggs are very different from sperm or from embryos or really from any other cell in terms of freezing. And the reason why eggs are so difficult to freeze is really for two reasons. First of all, unlike most cells in the body, which I told you have a water content of about 60 to 70%, eggs contain about 90% water. Almost all of the egg is water. And so with an egg, if you try to desiccate the egg, dehydrate the egg, re remove all the water, and replace it with these cryoprotectants, you're essentially replacing the entire, almost the entire cell with these cryoprotectants, and that can be toxic to the cell, and that can cause problems and make it much less likely to be able to survive. So because of that, that's one reason that it's difficult for, for us to be able to freeze, successfully freeze eggs. The second reason is also very interesting, is I, I told you that the process of forming the egg or forming sperm is called meiosis. And meiosis actually consists of two different divisions, called meiosis one and meiosis two. When sperm are going through spermatogenesis, the process of meiosis to form new sperm, it's constantly occurring. It's about a 72-day process from the beginning of meiosis until the formation of a mature sperm, and it's constantly happening throughout a person's life. When I told you that eggs are produced only up until five months gestation, and that at that point there are about six or seven million eggs sitting in the ovaries and that's it, those eggs have only actually get to a certain point in meiosis. They get up to a certain stage called prophase of meiosis one of the first meiotic division, and they arrest at that point. They're held in meiotic arrest. The meiosis stops at that point, and the egg stays at that point for many years until that egg, when the person is, gets older and is in her reproductive years, and that egg is ready to ovulate in a particular monthly cycle. Then at that point, the meiotic arrest is lifted, and meiosis resumes. But meiosis only resumes a little bit until fertilization when meiosis is actually complete. The mature egg in reproductive life gets to the point of metaphase in meiosis two, in the second meiotic division. And that's where you freeze, when we freeze eggs, we're freezing them at that stage when they're in metaphase of meiosis two. 
And metaphase is kind of a very delicate stage where there are chromosomes that are lined up at opposite poles of the egg. And the chromosomes, the equivalent chromosomes, are connected with very fine protein fibers, which are together, or collectively, is called the spindle, the meiotic spindle. There are these very delicate fibers that span the length of the cell, connecting the chromosomes at opposite ends of the cell. And those fibers are very susceptible to damage by the freeze and thaw process. And if you freeze an egg and it disrupts the meiotic spindle, the egg is done. You may thaw it and it may survive as a cell, but it's not gonna be functional as an egg because it cannot continue through meiosis. It won't be able to merge with the sperm when it's fertilized with the sperm. The DNA won't be able to combine with the sperm's DNA. So that's the other reason why it's very difficult to fertilize eggs. Now, nonetheless, we did make a lot of strides um, with this slow freezing method with eggs by adjusting the different concentrations of cryoprotectants, adjusting how quickly or slowly we, we freeze the egg. And we were able to do it. Actually, the first pregnancy with egg freezing was in 1986, only two years after the first pregnancy with embryo freezing. But it took several hundred eggs to get to that one which successfully made a pregnancy. And we've gotten still better at it, and we're actually pretty reasonably decent medically, scientifically, at slow freezing eggs. But it's still not amazing. And it wasn't really until within the past 10 years that we were really starting to able, we were starting to be able to reliably and predictably freeze eggs in a way that they would survive. And that's because there's a new freezing method which, which science, which was developed in the laboratory, which we now use mostly, that's the method that we now use mostly for freezing eggs and we've been using it also for freezing embryos more and more. It's a process called vitrification. Vitrification, it, it comes from the Latin root V-I-T-R, which means glass, like in vitro fertilization, means fertilization in glass in a petri dish or a test tube in the laboratory. So vitrification is, is a flash freeze. It's where we basically precipitously drop the temperature of that cell. We essentially immerse the cell in liquid nitrogen so that suddenly, within less than a second, within a half a second, even less, the temperature precipitously drops to that 350 degree mark below zero. And by doing that, it does not allow the water within the egg to form ice crystals. It actually flash freezes the egg so it looks like it looks like a glass model of a cell. That's what it looks like in vitrification. It looks like a piece of glass, basically. And with this vitrification method, there's much less of a chance of disrupting the meiotic spindle and of forming ice crystals within the 90% by volume water within that cell. And we're really able to very reliably freeze eggs now. To the extent that the American Society for Reproductive Medicine um, had always considered egg freezing to be experimental. And when something is experimental, officially designated as experimental in medicine, it carries with it some very serious consequences. It means that anybody that you offer treatment with that kind of, if we were offering egg freezing to anybody up until recently, we would have to do it under an IRB protocol, under an institutional review board protocol where we present what we wanna do, the review board reviews it, tells us whether they think it's ethical or not, where we have to make sure that we present properly to the patient all the different potential risks that we may have or may have not even thought of with regard to that process because it's considered an experimental process. When we would do egg freezing for people up until recently, it would literally be considered as if we were doing an experiment, a human experiment on that person and the process of consent um, would have to be very, very rigid. Now, as of last October, six months ago, 
the practice committee of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine removed that designation of experimental from egg freezing um, because it has become so reliable. Now, that still comes with caveats. Uh, we know we have many years of experience, we have 30 years of experience now with freezing embryos and many, many more years of experience, more than half a century with freezing sperm. And we know that the outcomes are good and we know that embryos survive the freeze-thaw process very well. We have only very short-term data with regard to egg freezing because this has really only been done within the last few years. So we know most of the, most of the most of the studies that have been done on egg freezing have only really, there are about four or five good randomized controlled studies and most of the data is, deals only with, um, with, with very short term egg freezing. People that freeze their eggs, thaw them a month later, two months later to use. We don't know for sure, we can extrapolate and we can guess that probably if you stop the metabolic processes of the egg, it's going to be just as good in five years from now as it is now, just as is true for embryos and for sperm, but we don't know that for sure. We can only extrapolate. The data do not support a definite success from long-term freezing of eggs yet. But that's something to be aware of. And also with the caveat that the American Society for Reproductive Medicine points out that pretty much all of the data about egg freezing relate to egg freezing in young women, and particularly in egg donors, who are young women with no fertility problems at all. There, there really are no data at all in terms of egg freezing for women over about the age of 38. So we might assume that a person at 39 or 40 years old can freeze her eggs and there would be a reasonable chance of success, just like for any 38 or 39 year old trying to become pregnant. But we don't know that. We really have no data about that at all. We really only know about young women, and in particular, young women that do not, do not have any fertility issues. So that, those are the caveats. Now let's move on at this point, away from, the freeze, from cryobiology, to a discussion about um, what are the clinical uses of egg freezing? What are the real life situations where patients might come to me to discuss whether I think freezing eggs would be a good idea for them to consider? So the most obvious and most simple clinical use of egg freezing is for a couple who is going through IVF, going through in vitro fertilization, and on the day that the eggs are, that the eggs are ready to be removed from the woman's ovaries, it turns out that that day, the husband does not have any sperm. There are no sperm. Perhaps we're doing IVF because the husband has a low sperm count, and perhaps on this day, the sperm are worse than we've ever seen it. There are no sperm at all. There are no sperm cells to work with. So in the past, we would have to jump through hoops and go through heroics to try to do emergency surgery on the husband and do a testicular biopsy and try to extract sperm directly from the testes because if we can't get sperm from him that day, then the eggs just have, they degenerate and they have to be discarded. Now, that's not the case anymore. Now, if for some, for whatever reason, we do not have sperm on the day that the eggs are coming out, we can just freeze the eggs and it's okay. We can freeze them, hold on to them, and on another day when we have a better sperm count, then we can thaw the eggs and try to fertilize them and move on from there. That's one potential use. Another very major use, um, which is up and coming now, and it's really just, like, we're just seeing the very beginnings of this and it's going to really snowball, is the use in egg donation. You know, for many years, since really the early 1970s, there have been commercial sperm banks which have kept frozen sperm, where if people need, let's say, donor sperm, they can order sperm from a sperm bank and the, the bank will ship the desired vial of sperm to whatever doctor is taking care of the patient 
you can use it. Um, eggs were always much more difficult. Egg donation is a topic for another whole discussion, but egg donation is very complicated um, and usually needs to be carefully coordinated. You have to find a donor right now. I have a patient who's working, we're working with a donor in Seattle, and I have to coordinate with a fertility center in Seattle to get that all the testing done that needs to be done for the donor in Seattle. I have to make sure that at the point that that donor in Seattle's eggs are ready to come out, that she'll be able to fly over here and I can take out her eggs. And at that point, I have to make sure that the intended mother, the recipient's uterus is ready to receive those embryos. It's very hard to coordinate, it's doable, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. Now, with the advent of egg freezing, we can start to create egg banks, which basically means these commercial institutions will recruit donors continuously. They'll pay egg donors to produce eggs and these eggs will be frozen and stored. And if anybody needs egg donation, they can just do a Google search and find an egg bank and find a donor that would meet their criteria and order those eggs to be shipped to their doctor and placed inside of the uterus. And this is already starting. If you Google it now, you'll find there are already some egg banks that are starting to do this. Some clinics are starting to do it and some commercial non-clinical entities are actually starting to freeze eggs to, to be used as egg banks. And this is gonna become much more prevalent. Another potential use of egg freezing is actually very, very interesting. Um, it's uh, if a couple is going through IVF, but embryo freezing is not an option, either from a moral slash religious point of view or from a governmental regulation point of view, then egg freezing becomes very helpful. And the specific situation actually relates to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church in Catholic doctrine, IVF is prohibited, you cannot do IVF. And the reason why the Catholics will not permit IVF is for two reasons. First of all, in Catholic teachings, um, anything which, via, which goes outside of the natural order of things in the world is immoral inherently. And so IVF is something that bypasses the natural order of reproductive physiology and because it's unnatural, it's immoral and it's prohibited. But there's another reason also, and that's that in Catholic teaching, human life begins at conception, which the church defines as fertilization. That means the moment that the egg and the sperm combine to form a new human embryo, that embryo has a full and complete status of a human being. And so the church would no, no more stomach the idea of freezing an embryo than we would stomach the idea of taking a two hour old infant and have the parents saying, oh, you know what, we're not ready to be parents yet. Let's freeze our infant and hold on to it for the next two or three years. We'll thaw our infant when we're ready. And you know what, there's about a 90% chance that our infant will survive the thaw. So obviously we would not be able to tolerate that ever at all. And the Catholic Church is no more able to tolerate the idea of embryo freezing because these embryos have the same status as a full human being. So people who are Catholics who are doing IVF, they're not really allowed to, but Bedievit, if they're doing IVF, which many of them do, they might not want to freeze embryos because of this. But eggs can be frozen because eggs are preconception, eggs are pre-fertilization, eggs do not have the status of a human being. And interestingly, I, I mentioned government regulations because there is one country, the country of Italy, probably, in, probably influenced by Catholic teachings, or at least influenced by public opinion, which is influenced by Catholic teachings, um, outlaws embryo freezing. By law in Italy, a doctor who's doing IVF on a couple is not allowed to inseminate, to introduce to sperm more than three eggs that are removed at the time of IVF and is not allowed to freeze any embryos. You can go to jail for freezing embryos in Italy. 
So actually, much of the recent research into egg freezing comes out of Italy because there's a clear and present need to freeze eggs in Italy so that people who are going through IVF who can, can only make three embryos for them and maybe they have 12 other eggs, you don't want to just throw them away. You want to try to preserve them, to cryopreserve them for the future. So a lot of the research into egg freezing comes from clinics in Italy. That's another clinical use um, of egg freezing. And then there's the fertility preservation aspect of egg freezing. Fertility preservation for medical, for specifically medical reasons, can be done in situations where a person is at risk for losing her eggs, for not having any more eggs in her ovaries. One such example is if somebody is, God forbid, diagnosed with a cancer, a young woman who's diagnosed with cancer that needs to be treated with chemotherapy, let's say, or radiation therapy. There are certain chemotherapeutic agents which are called gonadotoxic. They're toxic to the gonads, they're toxic to the ovaries, and they're toxic to the eggs within. And if a person is treated with that kind of chemotherapy, it can wipe out all of the eggs in her ovaries, and she will not be able to have any genetic children in the future. And if you know that this is a risk, and if the oncologist gives you permission and says that it's not gonna be dangerous for her overall health to delay the chemotherapy onset by a few weeks, then we can actually take a few weeks and remove eggs from her ovaries and freeze them and hold on to them. Now, if she was married already, at that point that she was diagnosed with the cancer, we don't have to worry about egg freezing. We can make embryos. We can take her husband's sperm. We can fertilize the eggs. We can freeze the embryos. But assuming this is a person who's not married, we can freeze her eggs so that she will have, even if the chemotherapy wipes out all of her eggs in her ovaries, she will have the chance in the future of being able to have a genetic child. Similarly, and we see this in the Ashkenazi community, there are certain mutations, which we've heard of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, which increase people's risk tremendously of, God forbid, getting ovarian cancer during the course of their lives. And so let's say we have a young woman, again, who's not married, who has a very strong family history of breast and ovarian cancer. Her mother had breast cancer at the age of 35. Her maternal grandmother had ovarian cancer at the age of 31. She's got ants with these tumors. She carries the BRCA1 mutation. Her oncologist might recommend, you know, you have a one in two chance in your lifetime of developing the terrible ovarian cancer disease we should do what's called a prophylactic ovarectomy, which means preventatively, we should surgically remove your ovaries to minimize your risk of getting ovarian cancer in the future. But this woman wants to have children in the future, and she's not at that point being able to do so yet. So what we can do is we can actually remove her eggs, remove eggs and freeze them, so that even after her ovaries are removed for the sake of her health, she will still be able to mother a genetic child in the future. Similarly, there are also certain women can have certain mutations. Many of you have probably heard of Fragile X syndrome. Fragile X is a syndrome that generally affects males, but if a woman has Fragile X in the family, she can be a carrier of the Fragile X mutation. And if a woman, let's say, at the age of 20, a young woman at the age of 20 knows that she's a carrier for the Fragile X mutation, being a carrier in this case does, it does not mean nothing, as it does for many other uh, genetic conditions. Being a carrier means something. If you're a carrier for Fragile X, you actually have a, a, a significant risk of going into what's called a premature ovarian failure. Ovarian failure is when there are no more eggs in the ovaries and you're going through menopause. Everybody goes through ovarian failure physiologically, but women who carry the fragile X mutation are at risk for going through ovarian failure prematurely. So let's say you have a 20-year-old woman who knows that she ha is a carrier of this fragile X. Her ovaries look fine right now. She's got plenty of eggs, but she doesn't know if she's going to go through menopause at 25 or at 28 or at 32. She doesn't know, and so she might want to freeze her eggs 
to hold on to them so that if she does end up going through a premature ovarian failure, she will still have that backup to be able to have a genetic child at that point. And this is where we come to what we're calling today elective egg freezing or elective fertility preservation by freezing eggs. And this situation, there are really two types of situations. One type of situation would be a patient, uh, somebody who, who is um, not married yet, has not met the right person yet, and would like to be married, but it just hasn't worked out yet. She's now 35 years old. She does not know what the future is going to bring. Um, and she wants to make sure that, let's say if she meets the right person in six years from now, when she's 41 years old, that she will have as good of a chance of being able to have a pregnancy at that point as she can. And she knows that eggs at 35 are healthier than eggs at 41. So she may want to freeze her eggs now at this point at the age of 35, not knowing what the future is, bring, is going to bring, just to hold on to just in case she needs them in the future. Or even you can even go backwards further in time and you can say maybe it's a 25-year-old woman who's not married yet and doesn't know what the future is going to bring and knows that eggs at 25 have a better chance of a pregnancy than eggs at 35. And maybe she would say, I would like to freeze my eggs and hold on to them just in case because I don't have the nevua to know what my life is going to bring over the next 20 years. Fertility preservation can also be done um, for somebody who, and this we see much more, I personally see it in clinical practice, much more outside of the um, Orthodox community. But in the general United States po population, um, there, are, there is an increasing number of people who are delaying childbearing for the sake of their um, education and careers. There are women who are intentionally not planning to have children yet because they first want to focus on their education, they first want to focus on their careers, and so they may not be ready to have ch start having children until often even in their later 30s or early 40s. And these women may know how fertility decreases with increasing female age and so may want to freeze their eggs and say, you know, I'm not ready to have children yet, but I'm 30 years old and my eggs I know at this point are going to be probably healthy. Let me freeze them and hold on to them so that when I am ready to start having children in X number of years, I'll have these eggs to use if things don't work out the way that I hope them to work out. This is um, fertility preservation. Now, I, you know, we're calling it elective egg freezing and I have, I am a little bit uncomfortable with that term elective egg freezing for certain situations. Because you know, if you see somebody who's 35 years old, a firm woman who's not married yet, is it elective that she's not married yet, that she hasn't met the right person? It's not. Is it elective that she once yearns to be a mother at some point? That's not elective either. Is it elective that she, her eggs are in an inevitable and inexorable process of decline like everybody else's with increasing egg, with increasing age? No. So it's hard to for sure call it elective. It's certainly something which she's choosing to do. It's certainly something which for her general health she doesn't necessarily have to do. But you know, there's a big discussion about that in general in the world of infertility and IVF, especially when IVF first came about, there was a lot of discussion with insurance companies. Insurance companies were saying it's called elective. Do I think that IVF is elective for somebody who does not have any fallopian tubes or a husband that barely has any sperm? You know, reproduction is a, a normal part of of what of human longing and human yearning and really human physiology. And of course, a person can survive in life without having children, but it's, if a person does not have children and wants to go through something to be able to have, to have children, do we call that elective or do we call that a medical problem which we're trying to treat? I personally think we're calling that a medical problem which we're trying to treat. Egg freezing in this case is a little bit different, a little bit 
different from that. But at the same time, I'm not sure that I completely agree with that designation of elective egg freezing. I would sooner call it fertility preservation in the face of the inexorable age-related decline of ovarian function. And it's the choice of the patient to do that, but it's fertility preservation in, that face of, in the face of increasing age. Just to now acquaint you briefly with the process of what happens if somebody wants to freeze eggs. So a woman who wants to freeze her eggs needs to go through about two weeks of taking self-administering injectable medications. There are certain hormones that she has to take in reasonably high doses. Um, there's a hormone called FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, which is produced by the pituitary glands in the brain in, every, in all of us. And in women, it drives the ovaries to prepare an egg every month. And a woman who's going through egg freezing needs to take higher doses of FSH by injection. She usually needs to take it for about injections for about two or three weeks, maybe one to three injections a day. During those two or three weeks, she needs to go into the doctor's office maybe every one to three days, every few days during that time, so that the doctor can monitor the egg development in her ovaries by ultrasound and by doing blood work to monitor the changes in her hormones. When her eggs are deemed ready, when they're ready to be removed, then the woman undergoes a procedure which is called an egg retrieval, which I actually think is a little bit of a misnomer because egg retrieval implies that the, the, the proper place for the eggs is in the laboratory and we're retrieving them from a person's ovaries to bring them into the laboratory. I think it should be the opposite, more called an egg removal in some, in some way. But colloquially, it's called an egg retrieval. The woman has to go under anesthesia. It's a light but general anesthesia. She's completely asleep. She does not need to be on a ventilator. She's breathing on her own, but she's asleep a light general anesthesia for about 15 minutes. A needle is placed through her vaginal wall under ultrasound guidance. We can see on ultrasound exactly where the needle is going. We put the needle into her ovaries and one by one remove the eggs that she's developed that month within her ovaries, bring them into the laboratory in a test tube. We identify the eggs, we clean off the eggs, and we freeze them. This process, um, carries certain risks to it like any other medical process. And anybody who's going through this has to be very well aware of the risks. And I think one aspect of the risks is the strictly medical aspect. When a person's ovaries are being stimulated with these hormones, a person can develop something called the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which brings a lot of pain and a lot of bloating. Sometimes an ovary can get so large that it can twist and cut off its own blood supply and need to be even removed potentially. These are devastating uh, conditions that can occur very, very rarely, fortunately, but they can occur. There can be internal bleeding from the egg retrieval, most of the time not, because we do it very carefully and avoid any blood vessels, but it does happen maybe one out of every thousand such procedures that can happen. A person can get an infection from the egg retrieval. Again, very rare, less than about one in every 500 egg retrievals, but it can definitely happen. Then there are the, um, the economic risks. So this is not a cheap thing, not an inexpensive thing to do. It costs, generally speaking, it costs about ten to $15,000 for one time to remove eggs for one month to freeze them. And that's not including storage fees afterwards. The um, you know, companies or agencies that store these embryos usually charge somewhere between about $600 to $1,200 a year for storing these eggs. So it's certainly a very expensive pro process. The medications themselves are expensive and insurance will probably not cover in this kind of quote unquote elective situation. So it's a very, very expensive process to undergo and that's certainly its own level of risk. Another area of risk is what is the health 
of the babies that's born through this process. And obviously this is an extremely important issue. Um, the, uh, when, the first, when Louise Brown, as Dr. Prager mentioned, that first IVF baby was born in 1978, there was a whole audience in the operating room. It was a C-section. And there was a whole audience in the operating room of the C-section, including government officials and uh, hospital officials. Everybody was waiting with bated breath to see what that baby was going to look like. And thank God, it turns out that IVF babies have no increased risks of developmental problems, major medical issues, need for major surgery as children. There were even a bunch of studies out of Belgium um, within the past 10 years looking at IQ scores of babies who are born with IVF. And everything seems to be equivalent to babies who are born from a spontaneous conception. Um, egg freezing, we have so far some data about that. And the data with egg freezing seem to show the same thing, that the babies seem to be in good health. There's no increased risk of any developmental or congenital abnormalities, but again, the caveat is that egg freezing is in its infancy, and we do not have any long-term data about this at all. With IVF, we have 35 years of data already. We've been watching these IVF babies very carefully in registries across the world, but with egg freezing, we have a few years of data at most, and that's pretty much it. At this point, Dr. Prager mentioned that about four million babies have been born with IVF. About, almost about 2,000 babies worldwide have been born with egg freezing. So we don't know anything long-term, and we really don't know enough about that. But so far, from what we've seen, it seems to be safe in terms of the health of the children who are born from this kind of process. And finally, in a way, I think that probably the biggest risk that I see in talking to patients about this on a daily basis, the biggest risk of egg freezing is the risk of creating false hope. And I think many people who freeze their eggs or are thinking about freezing their eggs have this concept, this feeling that these eggs are a great insurance policy. Because if I'm able to have a child without using the frozen eggs, great. But if I'm not, I have these frozen eggs and I will definitely be able to have a child. And that is not the case. The success rates that we know about so far based on those four or five good studies that I, that I mentioned before are like this. So the chances of a, a frozen egg surviving the freeze and the thaw are very good, about 90 to 97%. The chances of that thawed egg being able to successfully fertilize when inseminated with a sperm are about 70 to 80%. Also quite good, although not as good as the survival. The chances of that now fertilized thawed egg being able to implant in the uterus, actually attached to the uterus to create a very, very early pregnancy, are now that number drops to about maybe 15 to 30%. And the chances of that one fertilized embryo from a thawed egg being able to actually make it to the point of a clinical pregnancy, which is defined as seeing an early pregnancy on ultrasound in the uterus, that number is now about five to 10%. And the chances of that pregnancy actually making it to term, so the chances of a thawed egg that's fertilized, that's placed into a person's uterus, actually becoming a live-born baby is somewhere about three to 4%. It's a very, very low number. Now, we're always putting in more than one embryo. We put in usually with, in, with frozen thawed embryos or with frozen thawed eggs, we would probably be putting in closer to about three embryos. In one study, the average was actually about four embryos. Generally, it's about three embryos. It's always a balance. You want to try to give the person the best possible chances of a pregnancy, but obviously you do not want to give that person any real appreciable risk of a dangerous high-order multiple pregnancy. 
generally the right balance for a frozen embryo or, or uh, an embryo from a frozen egg is about three to maybe four embryos. And if you put in three or four embryos altogether, you can get something like maybe a 20 to 30% chance of a live-born baby from that embryo transfer, from putting those embryos inside of a person's uterus. My point is that these numbers are low. These numbers are not high at all. And when I counsel patients, I tell them that if you want to have these frozen eggs as kind of a backup to know that you have something that you can try before thinking about other options, before thinking about if you're at that point a needed adoption or egg donation or something like that, fine. But I do not want you to freeze these embryos, freeze these eggs, thinking that, oh, these are for sure going to be able to lead to a pregnancy because it's not like that at all. So we've discussed a little bit about the human egg. We've discussed a little bit about the principles of cryobiology. We've discussed some of the clinical uses of egg freezing. And I've discussed with you the process of egg freezing with its risks and potential successes. Um, and at this point, I would hand it back over to Dr. Prager and to Rabbi Brander. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lee. That was a most uh, uh, concise and um, very exhaustive uh, discussion of the science and the application of egg freezing. I know I learned a lot from that presentation, and I'm sure you did as well. Now I'm going to uh, introduce Rabbi Brander. After Rabbi Brander gives his presentation, uh, we'll have an opportunity for you folks to ask questions. I have a number of questions and scenarios that I would like to present to our presenters. Uh, rabbi Kenneth Brander is the Rabbi Emeritus of the Boca Raton Synagogue, the founding dean of the Boca Raton Community Kolel, and founder of the Weinbaum Yeshiva High School of Broward and Palm Beach Counties. During his 14 years of service to the Boca Raton community, he oversaw its explosive growth from 60 families to some 600 families. Under his leadership, the Han Judea campus was built to include the Boca Raton community mikvah, a sanctuary, library, social hall, youth and senior center in Yeshiva High School. <clears throat> he is a 1984 alumnus of the Yeshiva College and received his ordination from Rabbi Isaac Elkanan Theological Seminary in 1986. During his tenure at Ritz, he served as the student assistant to the esteemed Rabbi Joseph Baer Salavechik. In 1999, Rabbi Brandon received special ordination from Machon Pua, a center of medical ethics in Israel, and from then, and from then Chief Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu in the field of medical ethics, which included topics of infertility, gynecology, and halakha. He's currently a doctoral candidate in general philosophy at Florida at Atlantic University. Rabbi Brander has received numerous awards for his community service, including the South Palm Beach County Federation Award for Rabbinic Leadership, the Horowitz UJA Federation Award for Rabbinic Leadership, and the key to the city of Boca Raton for enhancing the quality of life in the community. He was the first recipient of the Yeshiva University Wexner Rabbinic Leadership Award in 1999 and was honored with the State of Israel Medal of Honor presented by the mayor of Gush Etzion for rabbinic leadership in supporting Gush Etzion. Recently, Rabbi Brander was given the Bernard Ravel Memorial Award by the Yeshiva College Alumni Association. It's my pleasure then to introduce Rabbi Brander. <laughs> First, uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to uh, share this podium with Dr. Levine and Dr. Prager. Uh, I too learned so much from Dr. Levine's really eloquent and very articulate uh, discussion about oocyte uh, cryopreservation. 
I also want to begin with just two or three comments before we drill a little deeper from a halakha perspective. That is also, I want to take this opportunity to thank Rabbi Fold, Rabbi David Fold, and his wife for really, um, no pun intended, but definitely appropriate, for really creating an incubator for the Medical Ethics Society. Um, he has, from its inception, recognized not only the wonderful work that the students are able to do, but I think he's done something even more important, and that is recognize the students and recognize the fact that he's really helped create leaders. And now that we're in our like uh, seventh and a half year or eighth year, st we're starting to see graduates from medical school who, uh, because of the largesse of the folds, were able to develop medical ethics uh, really as a campus project, and now it's really something that's gone all over the country. Um, you're starting to see them graduate from medical school and also still champion the causes that Rabbi uh, David Fold and his wife really helped develop for us. So I'm truly in their debt and greatly appreciate their work. Rishusamara Da Asra, Rabbi Golden, who is a, a wonderful colleague and not only a wonderful rabbi to you in Inglewood, but really a leader in very tumultuous times for uh, the North American Rabbinate as the president of the RCA. And uh, I'm sure being the rabbi of Englewood is a difficult and challenging job, but I'm telling you, I think the president of the RCA, especially the past two years, has been even more difficult. So, uh, but he's done it with grace, uh, with yashras, and with a clarity of vision that has, for all of us who are members of the RCA, we greatly appreciate that. And finally, um, I want to thank our students for uh, putting together conferences like this and, and more extensive conferences throughout the year to Mordechai and to Yosefa. Thank you very much for your wonderful leadership and your wonderful work. And uh, you, know, you should be very proud, all of you should be very proud of what you accomplish. I'd like to dedicate the learning today, uh, the, some learning that we're gonna do today, to Hanatova Bat Esther Shoshana. Um, to the one-year-old daughter of Rabbi Pupko um, and wish her a complete uh, Rafua Shalema. So I'd like to just uh, share with you just a few Makorot. Uh, they're in your hand, they're in your uh, folders. Uh, they're in your folders. So if you can just be kind enough to just to take it out and uh, then we'll discuss. These, there's, there's just a few, a few sources, three sources. Um, and my hope is, I just want to go through something, you know, a brief, a brief halachic discussion. It's really a halachic social, social halachic discussion, and then open it up to questions um, for for all of us. So the first source, which I traditionally have used a few times in discussing these issues in in, in general, is the recognition of our responsibility as uh, halachic Jews. And that is based on the Gemara in Baba Basra and Dafi Yeroman Aleph. The Gemara in Baba Basra speaks about the idea of Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus, the Roman, Judea, uh, the Roman governor of Judea, having a conversation with Rabbi Akiva. And Turnus Rufus says, Im, im if your God, O Hevanian, if your God loves the poor, why doesn't he himself sustain them? And Rabbi Akiva's response is um, to save us from going to Gehenna, to save us from going to hell. That we, by helping the poor, 
are saved from Gehenim ourselves. And Turnus Rufus says just the opposite. Because you help the poor, you are destined to go to hell. And Turnus Rufus explains if a, if, a, if a king incarcerates one of his citizens and says no one's to give the incarcerated citizen any food or drink, <coughs> would not someone who sneaks the citizen food or drink uh, be imprisoned? Um, and you, the Jewish people, are considered the servants of God. You are the servants of God. Rabbi Kiva's response, the ultimate optimist, despite everything that he went through, and it's appropriate to mention Rabbi Kiva on Lagba Omer, uh, Rabbi Kiva um, says, no, just the opposite. Perhaps a king um, incarcerated his own child and said, no one should give my child food or drink. And if someone snuck food or drink into uh, his child, would not the child feel, would not the king feel a certain <clears throat> debt because despite the fact he's incarcerated his child, someone saved his child. And we, says Rabbi Akiva to Turnus Rufus, are called the children of God. Rabbi Soloveitchik, and published by uh, his son-in-law, blessed memory, Dr. Tversky, always used to discuss this whole conversation between Turnus Rufus and Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Soloveitchik, and again, written in tradition by Dr. Tversky, would explain the following. This conversation between Turnus Rufus and Rebbe Kiva is really a conversation about what types of glasses do we, as human beings, wear? Do we wear the glasses of God? Do we, should we look at the world through providential glasses? And Turnus Rufus says, listen, that's what we should do. Our responsibility is really to act like God. If God said that these people shouldn't have food, we have no right to interact with, to change that. If God says that these people shouldn't have children, we have no right to, in any way, change that. But Rabbi Kiva says that's not our role in this world. Our role in this world is to be the junior partners of God. Our role in this world, as we say three times a day, is the takein olam b'malchut shakai. Our role in this world is to finish the job that God began. Our role in this world is not to ask ourselves why these things have happened, but when these things have happened, what can we do to change the status quo to help better society, to help the poor be fed, to help those who are going through the challenge of infertility um, be blessed through the gifts of science to uh, receive, um, really, I think, divine intervention through science. And we are considered, we are God's junior partners in this process. And therefore, I think the first point that needs to be articulated is how important it is to realize that the whole notion of fertility treatment is something that is halakhically mandated that we be part of. This is something that we should be engaged in. Furthermore, the Gemara and Shabbos, and this is almost to the opposite, the opposite extreme, and I think it needs to be mentioned, the Gemara and Shabbos and Daflam and Aleph tells us that after 120 years, God asks us a few questions. Question number one. Nasata v'natata v'amuna. Did we act with, um, you know, integrity? Did we deal faithfully? Did we deal with integrity um, in our business? Challenge that, unfortunately, our community uh, needs to deal with. Kavate even with Torah. Did we engage in the study of Torah? And asata v'piria v'rivia. Mistranslated it as, did we fulfill the commandment of having children. But if you notice, the language doesn't say 
Kiyamka period of Arivya, did you fulfill the responsibility, but rather Osakta, did you try? And I think it's important to recognize that halacha does not require heroic activities to be done by a couple in order to have children. You have to try to have children. But if, if for reasons beyond your control you don't have children, yes, please use the fertility treatments available in responsible fashions, but it is not a mandated, mandated compulsory thing to do. The question asked to us is asakta, did we try? Not kiyamta, did we fulfill? It's important for us to recognize that. And I close these makoros with one more, and then I want to develop this a little bit more. And that is a very famous me'iri, which I've used and mentioned a few times. And that is, the me'iri tries to explain, this is a sugya in Sanhedrin, source number three, about what the difference is between what Torah forbids that's under the classification of witchcraft and magic, and what the Torah permits, which is under the classification of science, which is, again, another venue of Torah. So he says, any advances achieved through natural science are not to be considered magic, which are prohibited. This will come, there will come a time, and, and this is the Me'iri, this is one of the Rishonim, way before uh, any discussions about IVF or PGD. There will come a time when science will know how to create human beings without the natural intimate act. This has been explained in the mystical books of nature and is not an impossibility. It is permitted to be involved in such procedures for they are considered within the order of nature, within science, and not in the category of forbidden magic. Anything that comes to us through science, even the Rishonim of the early period, acknowledge the fact that this is part of science. One should embrace it, recognize that there comes responsibilities with science, and recognize, um, and recognize the fact that that's the gifts of like PGD to make sure that we don't uh, create an in vitro fertilization process in which we give birth to Tay-Sachs children and things of that nature. The ability for PGD to allow us to give birth to healthy children and things of that nature are important to recognize. But I wanted to accentuate really how the pendulum swings within halacha. On the one hand, to recognize that there's a pendulum that tells us that we need to embrace science and recognize that we are the children, we, we look at it through the prism of Rabbi Akiva and that is we're here to be able to help uh, people going through challenging experiences, to recognize that this is viewed as a form of science, but to also recognize the fact that it is not halakhically demanded if a couple decided not to do it, um, to force a couple, God forbid, to be involved with such types of activities. What does halakha say about this new topic of oocyte cryopreservation? Well, because it is a fairly new topic, I don't think you'll find a lot of material written, but I have permission to share with you a conversation, recognizing that there's a reporter in the room as well as this is going to be on YU Torah, which is sometimes, uh, which gets around an audience of around 80,000 hits uh, a month. Um, um, and that is a conversation uh, that really is in two stages. Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, uh, of blessed memory, who was a gifted uh, halachist and was involved within medical issues. I actually took a bechina with Rav Mordechai Eliyahu on issues of fertility and halacha. And Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, at one point in time, was very against the whole notion of freezing eggs, of oocyte cryopreservation. He was concerned about wh what, what uh, types of challenges it would cause 
He was concerned about it creating a social dilemma where single, uh, would create single family homes. In other words, a woman would uh, freeze her eggs. She would then you know, order some sperm from the web and basically at some point in time within her life create uh, her own, ch- you know, have her own children and within a single family home. Now the truth is that can happen even without oocyte cryopreservation. That can happen simply with an IVF procedure. But he was concerned about it and he had let uh, some individuals know that he was not happy with it until he real- until um, he started to see within these within certain within a certain community in Israel that young women who were not so young anymore, uh, who were young at heart but not young at age, uh, were starting to do IVF procedures and use donor sperm, and obviously they would use Gentile donor sperm. Now, while the halacha might permit that to use Gentile do- donor sperm, there's a, two chuvas by Rav Moshe Feinstein about it, where Rav Moshe Feinstein permits it. Um, in cases where there isn't any other alternatives. Um, and actually, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach also permits it. It's in a volume, it's in a periodical, not well known, known as Noam. In the first volume, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach has a very lengthy tshuva about this issue, or an article about this issue. Um, he re- felt, um, and he uh, had a conversation with one of his uh, prize students, Rav Nachem Perstein of Mechampua, that we should look into this egg cryopreservation <coughs> and in a more significant way, not to force women who are single, but yet getting up in their years uh, to feel the need that in order for them to be able to have the wonderful opportunity of having children, we'll use donor sperm um, and IVF. So actually there was a meeting between four individuals, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Rav Lior, who was the Rosh Hashiva and the Rav, Kiryat Arba, Rav Ariel, a significant Torah personality within Israel, and Rav Menachem Bershnik. And together they came to a conclusion that oocyte cryopreservation was something that should be endorsed when necessary in order to deal with certain issues. So I don't think it's any question, and again, I like the, I, I like the, the terms that Dr. Levine used when we're talking about elective preservation, uh, when there are gonadic toxins that could challenge the ability for a woman to have children, that people felt that it was halakhali okay to do it, this I think is an important uh, recognition of the, medical, of the medical field and the ability for a person who's dealing with saving her life, that she doesn't have to worry about the fact that in the process of saving her life, she won't uh, be able to have children here, I think oocyte cryopreservation, especially with the new technique of, uh, that was mentioned of vitrification, is a, is a wonderful opportunity. And there's actually a study that was just written up in a journal, it's not a journal, it's actually, um, it's a piece that was put up by University of Pennsylvania, it was actually put out last week, where 600 women in Europe had undergone IVF, and they actually found little difference between the success rate of frozen eggs and of fresh eggs. Um, so it would seem to me that that while at a certain per- period of time, you know, we had the the whole notion of the birth control pill, which freed a woman from getting pregnant, the oocyte cryopreservation, in its proper perspective, can assure that a woman gets pregnant. Again, recognizing the limitations 
that Dr. Levine mentioned, and I think as science continues to champion this, those limitations uh, will change, um, can get pregnant uh, you know, in their 40s. Um, and we also have to recognize a few other things, and that is in 1970, the average age of women getting married, they were getting married at the age of 20, or actually 20.8 months, 20 years, eight months, and men, 23 years, 0.2 months. In 2010, the average age of a woman getting married is 26.1 months, um, and for men, it's no longer 23 years, 0.2 months, it's 28 years, 0.2 months. And I think that we need to look at this from, a, from an interesting perspective, and that is, will oocyte cryopreservation relieve the stress about dating? I think that this is a perspective that needs to really be a focus. And that is, you, you have a situation, and we're seeing this uh, because Yeshiva University has just created um, a project which, Baruch Hashem, we had no clue of how complicated it was before we started it, because I can promise you, um, I would never have agreed to be part of this or to lead this project. And that is why you connect. Uh, why you connect, this is probably the most challenging project I've ever worked on in my career. Uh, we, as of today, will have 115 Shiduchim. Um, but why you connect is much more than a service um, that deals with Shiduchim. Uh, because that's like putting your finger in a dam um, and just, you know, this will be another place where the dam's going to sp spring a, le a leak. It's about <coughs> discussing a challenge of this generation, and that is the whole notion of relationships and the whole notion of intimacy. When everything else is disposable in this world, and when you can order your coffees in a whole bunch of different permutations, you don't no longer have to be on the same page as a person you're going out with, you can also be on the same line or the exact same word on the page. And if you're not, and you've corroborated that you're not by texting your friends who have a total of no experience in the notion of dating relationships other than the fact that theirs hasn't worked, um, and have corroborated your conversations based on the uh, important uh, ability of checking Facebook and seeing that in 19, 16, the child, the person you're going out with, actually wore a dress that you didn't like when she was three years old, and therefore, how can you go out with her? Okay, she's now 23, doesn't have the same clothing, actually buys her own clothing as opposed to the hand-me-down she got from her parents. Despite, if you hear the frustration in my voice, trust me, it is nothing, I, it is with great discipline that I'm not sharing my full frustration on this issue. Um, and that is the whole notion of relationships and the whole notion of commitment in general is a challenge, and we view our responsibility to do two things. One is talk about these things, um, and we're f every time we do it, uh, it's really, you know, we get hundreds and hundreds of young people to it. Uh, Rabbi Savalovsky, Rabbi Tversky, and myself actually gave a talk last year on certain issues of dating, and I was at a meeting with the vice presidents, and one of the vice presidents went over to me and said, you excuse me, what are three older, bold people know about dating? I said, I'll ask you the question even more. What are three old, bold people, some of them being fat, bold people, what do they know about dating? But the bottom line is, the whole issue of relationships is a real challenge out there, a real challenge. And the question is, and I want to put it out there, because I really think that this is the conversation that's happening 
in various single communities, and that is, will oocyte cryopreservation relieve the stress of dating? Will it make a, a, young, a young woman who's 30 years old feel, I'll go through oocyte cryopreservation, or I'll go through oocyte cryopreservation in my 20s, and I'll get a few more years, and I won't have to settle on those issues. Um, and, if, and if that is a feeling, that perhaps there is some real positive components to that, if it, if it allows us to relieve the stress about dating, then the next question is, how do you let men know that you've done this oocyte cryopreservation? Because you have men who are 30-something years old who, who actually have the same physique that I do um, and basically say, I won't go out with anybody uh, that is older than 25 or something like that. And you know, someone has to explain to them that's not always going to happen, but the bottom line is, how do, you, how do you advertise or how, do you, how could a young woman indicate the fact that, okay, I'm in my 30s, but I've done oocyte cryopreservation and therefore, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't be put on some, you know, discard list. And I'm, I, I really, I'm sorry to talk this way, but you have to recognize that there is a psychosocial component to this piece that is really important. And I think um, if we can create some type of psychological security for young people, I think that there's another component to this that needs to be uh, recognized. Or will this promote the idea of single mothers? The same way, and, and I do not represent the, uh, you know, there are significant postkin who what they forgot I'll never know who disagree on this issue. Like, I'm a strong believer in PGD. I'm not a strong believer in PGD, so you can decide, you can decide that you, not to deal with medical issues, but rather you decide sex selection. You decide, well, I already have two boys. I really would like a girl, so I'll use PGD to, this, to make sure I have a girl. Or all my other kids have blue eyes. I just want to make sure that my next kid has blue eyes. Um, or I really like this name and it only work with a boy, so I'll make sure that when I do my IVF procedure and PGD, I'll do some family planning so I can use the name I really want. So I'm being a little cynical here, but the bottom line is that PGD can allow us to do those things. I'm not a strong advocate for PGD being used that way. But again, I want to make it clear so that there's halakhic integrity and honesty to this. There are people who say that's 100% okay to do. I'm concerned about that because I think we move from being, as in the story of Turnus Rufus, from being the children of God to, again, starting to act not as God's junior's partners, but as God's equal. And I'm concerned about oocyte cryopreservation, not because I don't think it should be used, like any new medical, tr medical treatment or medical opportunity, I think it has to be used responsibly. And if oocyte cryopreservation is now going to create a situation where all of a sudden we're going to have more single parent homes, I don't have any problem with single parent homes, and I think we have to make sure that they're active and included members within our community, and we can't ignore that important population. I'm just not interested in adding to that population in an elective perspective. And so I think it's important that we recognize um, the, these various issues, recognize the fact that, that science has given us a wonderful gift through IVF as well as through uh, oocyte cryopreservation, this new technology that is developing. I think we have to recognize that halacha is going to look at this through the prism of social issues. We have to recognize the fact that we're dealing with a population that's getting married later in life. I hope that oocyte cryopreservation does not promote 
the, you know, this idea of getting married later in life when you are making the decision based on professional uh, growth versus having families. But I do think at the same time, if it can create some type of psychological security for the young men and young women, um, so they don't feel pressured um, and feel like they have to settle, um, then I think that there is something positive there, but I think we have to be very nuanced in, the, in, in understanding the fact that we should, oh, we should embrace this, we should recognize its greatness, but we should also recognize that with every great opportunity, there also has to be a prism through which we look at it and recognizing the responsibility that we as, and I here speak as the rabbinic community, have to look at this and recognize that it's important to embrace, but it has to be, the embracing has to be done in a certain responsible way. Thank you. I'd like to, uh, I think you heard uh, a verification of my original statement that with every advance in technology there is a flip side, and I think Rabbi Brander clearly implied that there might be uh, a misuse, if you will, of this new technology by certain expectations and changes in people's behavior that might not actually be very positive. Let me uh, begin by asking Rabbi Brander this. On the one hand, uh, Rabbi Brander raised the uh, question of whether women, oh, by the way, I should preface this by saying, you heard how complicated the issue was from Dr. Levine. I think one of the problems in a situation when you have technology like this is that the public will see it in a very simplistic form. That people will hear, oh, now women can preserve their eggs. This is a simple thing. We just have to get eggs, put it in the basket, and then when it's time to have children, we'll take the eggs and we'll have children. You heard how the difficulty of it, you heard about the statistical likelihood, the low likelihood of it actually being successful. You heard about the side effects that are potential. I guarantee you that when the public hears about egg prior precipitation, they don't see these nuances, which are absolutely critical. So one of the big problems is the oversimplification of this in the minds of people. As far as the Jewish community is concerned, clearly, again, reproduction is a critical issue, and, she, and, and, and having shiduchim, this is obviously always on a very high level. Uh, instead of a woman now saying, you know what, there's no great rush for me to get married, I will freeze my eggs and uh, really look for the ideal person, and if I'm 35 when I got married, fine, I have my eggs in a basket. That's one potential downside of this. The other potential downside, it seems to me, is from the man's point of view, that when dating women or considering women who are a little older, maybe one of the questions on Facebook or whatever it is, because I don't know Facebook, is, hmm, I'm not going to date women unless they have their eggs in a basket in case there's going to be any type of uh, problem for fertility. I want to make sure that we have kids, or I heard that maybe this woman has some medical issues. So I'm not even going to consider dating anybody unless they have already stored 10 or 15 eggs. I don't know if that's an exaggeration, or, but a potential abuse. And my question then to both Dr. Levine and Rabbi Brander, how can the medical profession and the rabbinic profession try to prevent these abuses and misconceptions in the general Jewish public? Maybe Rabbi Brander, you want to start with that. So I, I think, that again, I, you know, I take great pride in the Medical Ethics Society. It's really the first club uh, that we helped develop. And really, it's the still club that I have the most, student club that I have the most to do with. But I think you have to look at the issue from another perspective, and that is 
the whole notion of having conversations regarding genetic challenges and stuff like that when, when dating is a challenging conversation. And I have to say, and, 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 there's, and I'm not uh, exaggerating the point, eight, year, eight years ago, testing done on college students, orthodox college students, was minimal. There was no testing done at Yeshiva University for college students. Eight years later, and it's totally because of the Medical Ethics Society, totally. It's, by, it's because of students, none of them over the age of 25, right, that it's unheard of at YU not to do genetic testing. It's like, it's part of the culture now. It's not only part of the culture at YU, it's part of the culture at campuses all over the place because of the Medical Ethics Society. Um, and the fact that they got all the Russian yeshivas to sign a document encouraging open testing, not closed testing, open testing. Um, and I think that what happens when this, the next piece of that conversation is, okay, we now have information. And with information, there is the ability to, uh, to make sure that we are, uh, th that we can build beautiful, uh, Torah-based families. The question is, how do I share that information? With information, there's power. How do I share that information? And that's a conversation that's important to have. So I think that um, with all genetic, with all genetic issues, there has to be a certain point within the dating process in which you know issues are brought up. And I think that that's also true. For example, there's uh, young women who I know of the fact that they had to have treatments for cancer and they dealt with. Uh, the issue of oocyte cryopreservation, if they were introduced to the people they were dating by a third party, so most of the time that third party felt thought when it was appropriate to have that conversation, and if it happened, you know, uh, thank God, in a uh, socially appropriate way in which they met each other, or introduced by friends and things of that nature, so there had, comes a point in time in which that, that that's communicated. I think there will also come a point in time, whether it will be on some uh, website's ch uh, you know, check-off sheet, you know, when you fill out all your things, are you modern orthodox, modern orthodox mosque right wing, left wing, this, that, all these crazy permutations, which mean nothing after people, they so mean nothing. But the bottom line is, we have, again, compartmentalized ourselves and siloed ourselves, and the challenge that I look at is how much should we buy into that challenge to help people uh, get married or meet people, and how much should we like rebel against that in order to say dayenu? But I think there will come a point in time, again, depending on the advances of coral preservation, where it may be not on the document itself, but rather that information is communicated so that a, a woman, a young woman who has so much, so much to give. Um, and being an easier connecto, um, if there is a concern that there might be a third party that is aware of the cryopreservation that she's gone through and will communicate it at the appropriate uh, shepherding of the process itself. I think that's the way it will most probably be handled. That's the way it's handled when, when, sh when a, a young lady has gone through cancer and other things and has needed to do that to make sure that the... Uh, that it doesn't become an obstacle for dating and for and for marriage. By genetic testing of the medical students, you're referring to Tay Sachs and things. Well, we're talking about a lot more than Tay Sachs. We're talking about testing. I think we're up to what 19. 
Uh, it's done really in partnership with a genetic a testing program run out of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, and um, um, it, there's a minimal charge, but again, thanks to uh, support from many people, one of them is in this room, the, uh, you know, that charge was basically waived for any student that had any financial challenges. And we're working, again, this is not the place to have this full conversation, we're working both with insurance companies and there's a new test that has come out of, that is approved in certain states, but not in other states, that would reduce the course from $250 to maybe $25. So we're working to get that approved within the New York State, and then the whole need for financial support for testing would then get thrown out, you know, get thrown out the window. So basically, you're optimistic that this uh, information about prior precipitation will not be used inappropriately in the No, I, I'm not, I'm optimistic that we'll try to deal with it responsibly. I'm, uh, I'm not optimistic to a fault. I'm sure someone will figure out a way to use it irresponsibly. But the bottom line is that I think that we have the capacity to use it as I've seen with open testing that it's used in a very responsible way. I think this will be used in the same way. We just have to approach it that way. Um, Dr. Levine, you want to, uh, in terms of just information out there for the medical, uh, for the lay public. Uh, do you see any way that uh, to counter the oversimplified expectations of the public uh, in terms of what we can expect from genetic, from uh, cryo precipitation? Cryopreservation. I think that's, that's really a major issue and I think it's really, the onus is on the medical community to really try to educate people about what cryopreservation of these eggs really is and what its potential successes are and what its potential risks are. And I think the medical community sometimes has to walk a little bit of a fine balance because a, a medical clinic is out for the good of its patients, but at the same time, it also may be starting an egg cryopreservation program, which is trying to market online. So I think on one hand, you know, some clinics might be trying to recruit patients for this, but at the same time, those clinics have to also try to convince those patients in a way not to do it or warn them away before recruiting them. So it's it's a balance and I think yeah, you know some some parts of the medical community I think do better at meeting those kinds of challenges than others, but I think it's it's our responsibility across the board to do that as best as we can. I do think that um the the success rates as Rabbi Bender said will likely improve from those numbers that I told everybody, but I think they will only improve up to a certain point. You know, even in the 35 years that we've done IVF, the science has become much more sophisticated and the success rates from IVF have become much greater than they were in the early 1980s. But, um, but there is kind of a cap, you know, even with IVF where you think that we have, we have an egg at hand, we have an embryo in front of us, we put the embryo directly into a person's uterus, it's nowhere near the 95% chance of a pregnancy that you would expect. It's, it's at best, for the best prognosis patients, about a 65% chance of a pregnancy, maybe a 30% chance of a live birth. And I think you know there are medical reasons for that. There's a lot that we don't know about what goes on inside of the uterus. I think there are also Hashkafic reasons for that. I think you know, in a way, Hashem is never going to relinquish that you know, that control, that mafteach shel chaya, that key to life that he holds on to um, in, in a way that will allow us to give patients medically uh, close to 100% chance of a pregnancy. So I think that the pregnancy chances will go up, but will never be as great as the, po the general population will consider it to be, Dr. Prager. Um, yes. Dr. Katz, speak up. I, I think I remember reading rather recently that there's a male biology 
I think maybe part of our, if there is, if sperm also quality uh, decreases over age of men, I think uh, that's an answer for Rabbi Brander maybe uh, to, uh, to stimulate. Uh, that has to get out a lot more than it has been uh, gotten out of the young men. Right, that's a good point, Dr. Katz. It is true that um, in the later years of, with, you know, with ongoing decades, male fertility also declines somewhat. But I use that term somewhat because it really doesn't decline in any real clinically appreciable way in the setting that we're talking about. You know, we're talking about potentially men in their late 30s or 40s looking for a shidduch. The male, male fertility at that point is still very, very good. There is a drop-off, and I mentioned that sperm production continues throughout life, and that's true. Right, so even the quality, you know, there are some data about increases in chances of autism, for example, with men who are fathering uh, children later on in life. But male fertility, the chances of being able to father a successful pregnancy, really do not decrease in any real appreciable clinical way um, until probably much beyond what the shidduch scene is, is really talking about. So it's, it's very different. And I think it, it is true that men can certainly preserve their sperm, and that's done, as Rabbi Branzer mentioned, in situations where a male is diagnosed with cancer, God forbid, or something like that, and is about to be treated with some sort of chemotherapeutic agent, which can be toxic to the testes, to sperm production. So men will try to, try to free sperm before that kind of treatment. And that's where halachic questions come up. What if that man is not married yet? Can he produce sperm in order to be able to freeze it? So that's certainly done. But in terms of age-related fertility preservation, I don't think that's as clear and present of an issue for men as it needs, as it needs to be for women. Mickey, it's not fair, but those are the facts. No, I, I, I think research is going to come back. Anyway. There is a lot more than just autism. All right. Women have been blamed for centuries. I think it's the men's time. Could be. Dr. Harris? Uh, Sperm is non-Jewish sperm. It's the, the, right. the, the, the non-Jewish sperm. Right, non-Jewish sperm. And the egg, the question, you know, there's a difference in opinion about what priorities there should be in Trumape seats and who you look for first in the contribution <coughs> for an egg. Do you first go to a non-Jew uh, or do you go to a single Jewish woman first? And there's different posts give that say different things. But assuming you work out those issues, which are not issues that are too difficult to work out, and the family wishes to, uh, uh, you know, wishes to have a a, um, a child. And let's just keep in mind that, according to many, many poskim, the definition of a mother is not the genetic donor of the, but rather the host mother. I'm very careful with my language, but Dr. Levine has 
taught me that uh, that a surrogate, there's two different words and I have to use the right one. So I'm trying to n make sure that I'm being uh, precise there. But the, the mother, gestational mother, the gestational mother, um, <coughs> if the gestational mother, that according to many she told, Rav Aaron Salavetche, uh, Rav Zalman uh, Nechemi Goldberg in Tchumim, the fifth volume, and, and many others, it's unclear. There's certain, personal, certain personalities that have, have moved back and forth on their understandings of these issues, but there are a significant amount of poskim that would define the mother as not the donor, but rather the, the stational uh, carrier. So let's just understand that according to many poskim, that if, uh, if the egg came from a non, if the egg came from a non-Jew, According to many many poskim, a conversion uh, wouldn't be necessary. And for some, like Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, who says you should do the conversion because we don't we haven't come to conclusions on what's the definition of the mother, but do the gerut misafek, which is which is the protocol that most rabbis, I believe, follow uh, in order to make sure that we don't create babies that are only kosher according to one authority and not kosher to another authority. Now you may, that may work for kashrut, that you have various koshering authorities and you decide you want one over the other, but it shouldn't, that shouldn't work for children. So I think that wouldn't be a problem, assuming all the other, based on your, uh, on your thing, and, and to recognize the fact that there's a major postkin, significant postkin, that say the mother is the one who carried the child. Rabbi Fink? Fold. Uh, Rabbi Fold, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> Another often 
someone who just can't erase. And I, I tell you, my personal prejudice has always been I'd rather see the mommy fight today than five years from now, and I would demand it if I were king. Um, that no mom will ever see more than one embryo returned at a time. Um, and I think, by the way, that's not without statistic. I give kids certain, well, all twins that are 36 week gestation is an average. IVF comes out earlier than that. This, this is an early birth, so you'll notice it more. With those problems, so I, I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, Rabbi Brandon, I want to tell you what it's worth. There's a new shyness of Jews, the Mushavites, which I think will be the reason. Mushavites, for those of you who don't know, is one of the up and coming Karim posts An important player, um, certainly very Karim, who's just taken on as a Posek, and Shagat said. And he published his first set of should be. If one cannot impose PGD, there's a field on its foot Couples, as you mentioned, obliged to have children, but not obliged to engage superhuman. But he goes on, which is really a, a, an icebreaker, uh, to say that a couple elects to do that. Certainly, was McKayan, the key of the book. But he did that, this came out a few months ago. I called him and I congratulated him on having the gut, the stamina, that writes something like that. And he said, you don't know what's happening. And that same point out, you understood this. Everyone's calling me and killing me just for that. And Minchas al Lazar actually has a similar chuva for IUI and IVF. So this, right. PGD. Right. And that came out right after a crime and made those horrific remarks about IVF. Right. So I'm sure you can it. Yeah, right. Um, so this was like a breath of fresh air, which is there. The sad thing is, which is why I'm so proud to have something to do with avoiding medical illnesses. There's no notice of today the power of free sleeping. We're the guys who convinced we can't interfere with God. We have to encourage God's punishment and God's shortfalls. Somehow brokenness, toxically, seeped into all of our thinking and all of our doing. Um, that's a refreshing presentation of our time. Um, and I think most of us have missed that. Things aren't Hashem. The Dubai institution mandates that we don't accept Hashem. But we certainly avail ourselves of the skills of medicine presenting this whole today, and that we need to show very proper that we improve the inspiration of the matter. And that's what defines us as Allah and Jews, as distinct from true Jews. Um, the word true today is a broken kind of thing. I know when I travel to Brooklyn, I generally turn my watch back by 85 years. Um, one has to recognize. What's authentication and what is not? And I think it all ties seep in specifically in this reproductive technology that's become available to us that dulls the senses what's ethically wrong, what's ethically okay, and what's mandated by our law. So I congratulate you. Um, don't mess with the <laughs> Be well, Lord. Thank you. Are there uh, any other questions? Yes. Actually, most of the basic research in the area of fertility preservation right now is in the hunt for stem cells in the ovary. That's what we're really looking for. 
and there was a report in, in the journal Nature a couple years ago that some researchers up in Boston might have found a stem cell in an ovary. And if there are stem cells that we can identify in an ovary and figure out how to stimulate those stem cells to start to re resume the process of oogenesis to start to produce new eggs, that would really be a game changer for all of human physiology. I, I can't even imagine the ways that things would start to get more complicated in that regard. But that, that's where most of the research into fertility preservation, not so much in stopping the apoptosis of eggs, the cell, the cell death of eggs, but in trying to rejuvenate the egg production and restart that in life after that five months gestation. It's really it's it's a combination of all of it. Um, everything that happens in the laboratory is important. is an important component of the success rate. So the freezing method is important. The thawing method is important, although somewhat less so. Um, the uh, embryo culture method, what you actually grow the embryo in in the laboratory, is very important. The ability to push the embryo further in the laboratory. Our success rates have risen now that we've been able to culture embryos to five days after fertilization to the blastocyst stage instead of the eight cell stage at three days old. Um, these are all very important and I think one of the major important issues also that a lot of the research is focusing on right now is the environment of the uterus. Right now, as I briefly mentioned before, we don't know, when we put embryos into a person's uterus, we're basically putting them into a black box from the point of view of science. We don't know what happens inside of the uterus and if there's some way that we can learn how that embryo interacts with the lining, with the cells lining the uterus and be able to somehow facilitate that interaction to promote implantation of the embryo, that will be a big a big help also in terms of the success rates. It's really everything that goes along. It's actually really remarkable. In 35 years, we've been able to learn how to grow a human embryo for five days in the laboratory to mimic what the human body does for the first five days of a nine-month pregnancy. And that's pretty much it. We can't grow it any further than that. So it's, it's remarkable. But it's every step of the way in the lab. Any other questions? Yes. Um, do you do freezing in your clinic? In my clinic, I don't yet. No, we, I refer patients. First, I counsel them and talk to them and really help them decide if it's something that they really would like to do. Um, I was involved in egg freezing research when I was a fellow in Boston. We were actually working on some of the protocols, especially the slow freeze protocols. But um, I don't do it. I don't offer it clinically to patients yet. I send them usually to NYU. Um, NYU is probably the place in this area that has the the largest egg freezing program and a program that I think you know does a good job with that. Are you doing embryo freezing? Yes. Um, do you know uh, what is the longest period of time that a frozen egg? Um, the longest time, I'm not exactly sure, but it's not more than uh, several months. So, 
as opposed to embryos where we have reported pregnancies from several years of freezing with embryos. That's actually, it's a good question, Mrs. Anker, and it's actually one of the benefits of freezing eggs, of cryopreserving oocytes, as opposed to embryos, is that it's actually much less of a legal minefield, because when you freeze embryos, then who's the owner of the embryos? What happens if the couple separates? What happens if, you know, God forbid, one member of the couple passes away and the other member of the couple wants to use those embryos in some way? That's difficult, but if it's, if it's a frozen egg, or a frozen sperm, then it really belongs to just one person. Um, it's still a legal minefield because you get into situations where there was a situation um, up in Boston, actually, at Massachusetts General Hospital a few years ago, where a um, you know a young woman was in some sort of a terrible accident. I think she was actually deemed to be brain dead, and um, her family actually wanted her eggs removed from her ovaries, um, and uh, they they actually wanted a eventually to be able to have a child, you know, from those eggs, their grandchild with her parents who were pushing for it. And um, so it still becomes complicated, but it's less complicated than embryo freezing from that point of view. I think we'll uh, end now. And those of you who may have a question, I'm sure if you came up, our speakers would be happy to respond. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you so much. Really.